HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by the International Culinary Center, offering courses that range from classic French techniques in culinary, pastry, and bread baking to Italian studies to management, from culinary technology to food writing, from cake making to wine tasting. For more information, visit culinarycenter.com. I'm Grace Bonney of After the Jump, and you're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with Anna Sophia Palais and Ellen Silverman, visiting Cuba via The Cuban Table, your wonderful new book that just came out. Um, you know, it's, it, it's funny, in the U.S., I think a lot of people know of that Caribbean island nation as embargoes and, like, baseball defects. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there's so much more to it. I mean, and the Cubano, the, the eponymous Cubano sandwich. But obviously, there, there's so much more rich cultural context there. Mm-hmm. And to begin with, Ellen Silverman, you're a wonderful photographer. I've been a fan of your work throughout the years. Gwyneth Paltrow's books, Karen Damasco's Craft of Baking is one of my favorites ever. Thank you, by Michael. By far. Um, Visually, this book is so striking. And you first journeyed to Cuba. Uh, and what was that, you know, visual allure that brought you there? I was invited to Cuba by um, the Santa Fe Photographic Workshop on one of their first trips to join a group of photographers on sort of a cultural exchange. And I guess what I can tell you, Michael, is the moment I got there and... When I arrived, it was night and everything was dark. Uh, There weren't really any lights on or not many lights on. And and so I didn't really have a sense of, you know, what I was, where I was, where I had arrived. And I woke up in the morning and it was just before dawn and a group of us went out. And as the light came up and the city was revealed, I was just completely 
visually intrigued by what I was seeing. Um, the color, the texture, shapes, rhythm, uh, the movement of people. Um, and it just, from there, I, I just couldn't put my camera down once, once I started shooting. Yeah, and Anna, you have a much more familiar approach to Cuba, mm -hmm. being that your family is actually from there. Um, yes, I grew up, my family is Cuban, and I also grew up in Miami. So it wasn't just coming from my family. It was just everything that I was surrounded by from, well, since the beginning. So um, it was always something that I was had grown up with, and it was something that it was always a very important part of, of my upbringing because we always had that sense of, like, wanting to not break that continuity, wanting to always, wanting to always be able to be able to find our way back and always not forget where we were from and so that you know if the day came that we could go there we would we'd be able to kind of like pick up where we left off and and be you know just know where we were from i know there's an area in miami called little havana i mean mm -hmm. how how close does it feel like a piece of cuba to you um, you know, I didn't grow up in Little Havana. I grew up in Jewish neighborhoods mostly. Um, so, but it was definitely that was kind of where we would go. You know, to to definitely like there were some, tons of ton of restaurants there, and and that's, you know, you know the dominoes are there, and the, and the music was there. So it was always is always like a very special place when we would go visit. But it was definitely not restricted to that area. Um, Little Havana, it's just, it's really it goes beyond those borders, and it's really the entire city um, that where you can find those bakeries and those restaurants and, and those gatherings, that's that's very much part of like what it's it's gone way beyond Little Havana yeah. at this point. It's 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 kind of like the city of Miami is almost like northern Havana at this um at the, it's it's a much more porous border than than you would think. In in two thousand eight when you started Hungry Sophia, your blog, mm -hmm. it, it was kind of to, you know, preserve the rituals and traditions of Latin cuisine, but it that that had a larger scope. It wasn't just about Cuban you know, food, why did you start that and how did it narrow its lens? Well, to me, it always started with Cuban food was always my point of comparison. Um, but growing up in Miami, I also, my friends, my closest friends were Colombian and Panamanian and, and Mexican and Peruvian. We had all different Latin, Latin American nationalities. So you would go to a friend's house and they would have what you would think of as a flan, but they would call it a quesillo. So it was always these little differences that I grew up with that I thought would be interesting to explore. So as much as I am Cuban, so I have that kind of, you know, a little bit, little bit of arrogance where we kind of <laughs> claim the Cuban coffee and we claim the Cuban sandwich. We kind of like slap a label on everything. I was always aware that other Latin American countries had things that were very similar to ours. And I think in those points of, points of difference where they would kind of, where there was a variation on that recipe or on that tradition, I thought was very interesting. So that was, that became the focus of my blog. Um, but I did always kind of go back to Cuban food. I would try and kind of space it out. So I would give myself a Cuban recipe a month, and then I would circle back. I mean, Ellen, you obviously went back to Cuba a few times. You had a one-woman show about Cuban kitchens. Yes. As a food photographer, I mean, I was looking. I thought, what am I going to photograph here? What's going to grab you know my interest? There were so many possibilities, and... I decided that I wanted to focus on kitchens, and it was just an amazing experience because literally I was walking around with another uh, Cuban photographer that I'd met, and we were knocking on doors and just asking people if we could come in and look at their kitchen, and most of the time people were, yes, absolutely come in. They were completely baffled as to why I would want to photograph a kitchen. Um, but once we just started talking, people were like, sure, whatever, you know, do whatever you want and you need to do. There were 
a few people who said no and were suspicious and, you know, just did not want us in. But um, I started that project, and then I found a gallery here who was interested in it, so I went back two more times to continue working on that. What was it about those kitchens that was so distinctly, you know, different? I I know in the book you mentioned things like Coca-Cola cans as toothbrush holders. I mean, what what was it about, you know, the, the idiosyncrasies or the iconography of those kitchens that changed? Well, one thing that was interesting, and I didn't, notice it at first and the first when I came back after the first trip and I looked at the photographs I noticed that and I think I unconsciously noticed that but everybody has the same refrigerator everybody has the same pressure cooker most people have just a you know little two burner stove um and yet with those things there was the personal touches and that's that's really what attracted me in finding the little treasures, like maybe somebody had, you know, an arrangement of teacups. There um, was a, a farmhouse that I went into, um, actually, on the trip for the book. And there was some newspaper tacked to the wall very carefully. There were five nails, and there were five mugs, beautiful little floral mugs. And then there was a purple and white flowered towel hanging and some two plates and a lime sitting in the plate and there were little red flowers on the plate and it was just a perfect still life I mean I couldn't have made it myself and you know that's finding those moments um, you know is what's really special to me yeah I mean for years too uh, Cuba was a communist nation underneath Fidel Castro I think since like 1965 and the majority of Americans thought of it as exactly how you explain the same thing in you know communism Mm -hmm. everybody has the same exact thing but obviously there's flourishes of personality um and in this book i mean it shows that there's so much uh breadth of of culinary arts in cuba how did you kind of distinctly define you know what was where from east to west um, I don't think you when you when you talk about Cuban cuisine, I don't think you have as 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 much regionalism as you you can compare to say Mexican cuisine, where one part of the country is has nothing to do with the other, or even Italian, where North and South are cooking very different things. Um, Cuba overall, it is an island. It's 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 connected, and its history, its culinary history is very connected. So we may have some variations within recipes, and some ingredients are different, um, but but for the most part, you know, it's 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 going to be the same. Rice, rice and beans. They're just going to maybe have some kind of ingredients. They're going to have add an additional spice. They're you know in the east they add a little bit more heat. So you see a little, you see more of the influence of of Haiti and Jamaica and, and the the other the larger Caribbean. Um, and in where my family's from in Havana, it's it's western. It's you're not going to have any kind of heat. They're going to favor the sweet. Um, so in that sense, there, there's very slight differences, but they're not as stark as what you think of in, in other countries. I mean, there's so many different types of people there, too. I mean, it was a nation originally claimed by Christopher Columbus for, you know, the, mm-hmm. the king of Spain. So you have Spanish inflect. Um, but then the indigenous people, who are they? The Taino and the, the Sabone? And- the Taino and then the Sabone was a relatively, it's a smaller, more localized population. Um, but you, you see their influence, too. And I think... They were the survivors, and I think they passed on like what that that country could give, and I think definitely in like the Ajiaco, you see all of their 
all of the root vegetables and the peppers that they would use. That's the base of what we think of as, as, as Cuban food. Is, is that, that recipe is the central where everything kind of emanates from. With the sofrito. Yeah, yeah with the yeah. sofritos, the peppers. You have, you know, all the different kinds of meats that were brought in from, from Spain. A lot of times that they were, they were cured and salted just because they had to, you know, make the crossing and, and that introduction. So I think in, in certain dishes you see the entire, the entire all of Cuban history. Um, for the most part, the most important influences are Spanish and African. Um, the Taino, the indigenous, it's, it's, it's relatively, it's, 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 it starts at the beginning and then you, you kind of see hints of it um, throughout. But it's, it's really the African, the Spanish, is the, it's the most important. And then you also have French, you have Chinese, you have a lot of other things that have shaped it because it was, you know, it's a port town. So there was always some, somebody coming in and out and, and adding, you know, here and there. So... There's a, there's a lot there. I mean, let's talk about entering the country itself. What, what is that first thing that you find? I mean, bakeries are abound there. Do you run for a, what? What do you call it? A pasty? Well, bakeries actually, I think, are the one thing. I think you see a lot of them yeah. in in Miami. I think that's very much part of like a part of the life there. In Cuba, I, the bakeries. I think that was the one thing that you did not find, or you did not find it in a way that was was very good. I think any kind of like butter, any kind of like. Everything, all the bread was very crumbly. Huh. Everything was very dry. Um, so that that part in Cuba was not was not good. Yeah. I think that was one of those things that we can definitely say is is being lost in Cuba. Um, obviously, in Miami, the bakeries and Did the you coffee find it shops. More in homes, though. I mean, good butter, good pastries. No, no. But we did find, <laughs> we did find one day in Camagüey there was a man with a cart in the street and he was selling little pastelitos with guayaba in them, which happens to be my favorite. I mean, I, I could eat dozens of them at once, and those were really delicious. But as Anna's saying, it's not like you find a bakery on every corner. I mean, I think there are limits as to far as far as what they can accomplish. Um, when, you know, this is something that I, I noticed that whenever any, any kind of recipe involved a lot of different ingredients, like you say, like arroz con pollo, where you have saffron and you have the cumin, and you have the oregano and you have this long list that you have to pull together that, you know, that, that you lo- you lose a lot of that when you, when you, when you have them in Cuba, because they just, they just, they can't. So there's a lot of things that they do without, or they finesse, or they just, they just leave off. Um, when anything was had to do with technique, like when you're cooking the pork in its own fat and you're raising that pig and you can slaughter that pig and you can cook that pig, that they're going to do as well as, as as it can be done because it it all it's all kind of it's a self-contained thing that they can that has everything that that they need to cook it with. But no, I mean there's there's a lot that they can't do right now. Like they would give me a long recipe, and then I would get to the end and be like, okay, is that it? And they'd be like, well. If you can get milk and cinnamon, and then they would give me the other recipe that they hadn't even, they had even, they don't even think that they could use those things anymore. So a lot of things were being, were missing um, that they've gotten used to, to going without, to doing without. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a different Cuba, obviously, from, you know, generations ago. Um, What do you think kind of the culinary traditions of Cuba uh, that, that have been lost in the recent generation? Um, when I first, my first trip to Cuba in 2000, they would always, they always had references for what, what, what they weren't, what they couldn't find or what they didn't have anymore. This last trip in 2013, things had fallen out of memory. And that was very surprising. I was speaking to, to someone, I was interviewing a chef and I asked him, you know, what are some of the recipes that you don't see anymore? And when I asked people, Cubans in Miami, 
what these recipes were. They would say escabeches or these kind of very Baroque desserts with like 24 egg yolks and these very kind of old-fashioned things that their grandparents used to make that they didn't have anymore. And that, that, that's understandable. I think, you know, with time, it's the same kinds of things that we, you know, we don't have time to do. When I asked in Cuba, they said, you know, he and he had an incredible, he had wonderful knowledge and wonderful restaurant. And I asked him, you know, what kind of recipes do you, can't you do anymore? And he said, picadillo, ropa vieja. And I just, my heart just broke for him because that's, to me, that's like, that's everyday cooking. And he said, you know, some people, some of the kids that work here, they come up to me and they want me to tell them what a fritura de bacalao is like. And a fritura de bacalao, that's like the <laughs> most like humdrum every bakery you can go in and get that order. It just it was very familiar to me that it was incredible to me that there was an entire generation that doesn't isn't familiar with these foods anymore. And it's it's fairly recent. I'd say it was in the last twenty years or since the special period going forward. Things that they had they had done without had not had not come back again. So you two obviously felt like this was a very timely project in the sense that. If you had done this five years from now, you might have been losing that much more culinary tradition. Um, I, 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 mean, I think Cuba, like everything, like how Ellen's talking about the things that they try and save and the things that they're conserving, that the way that they keep everything in such as, as good a condition as they can, I think that's what they do with food also. So you have, they're constantly, try, they were always asking questions like, do you remember this? And I remember having this. And so they were very curious about trying to maintain these things. But then it's just out of their everyday usage. I mean, beef is not, it's very hard to come by. They actually warned me away from seafood because they said, like, in the restaurants, they'll take it out and then defrost it. And then if it doesn't sell, they'll, they'll freeze it again. So I think their experience with food is very much about subsistence. And it's about just trying to get enough and enough calories and enough to just get by for that day. So it's not it, th- these kinds of like recipes that you really get involved in or you just you want to make something, you want to have that experience in the kitchen where you're trying different things. That's just beyond what they can do right now. Right. But at the same time, I think one thing that Anna and I discussed early on in this process is that this was also a project about recovery and, you know, exactly what Anna's talking about, about finding the, the recipes that... Maybe people can't prepare anymore, but making sure that they're recorded so they're not lost and that, you know, future generations will have access to them. But, you know, we're sort of painting this pic- this picture one way, and I think we also had some amazing meals. Um, one of the first days we were there, we stopped at a farm called Las Masas just outside of Havana, and we had this incredibly delicious, and I'll fried pork that's mm-hmm. then conserved in its own fat and we had um, freshly fried uh, yuca chips and um, we had flan that was absolutely delicious and there was another farm that I stopped at and we had a meal of um, lamb in a, in a spicy red sauce and also plantain chips and um, flan so you do find really delicious, flavorful food, you know, but you won't have a menu that has, you know, 10 or 12 choices on it. Maybe there's one or two things, but they do them really perfectly. And, and it's a treat and a surprise. Excellent. Well, we're going to take a quick break, come back, and at least define for people the difference between moho and mojitos. <laughs> <laughs> just, just a starter there. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We'll be right back.
The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org. The ICC, with locations in New York and California, provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com. Hey, and welcome back to the food scene on heritageradionetwork.org. Michael Harlan Turkel here today with Anna Sophia Palais and Ellen Silverman and the Cuban Table. Now, Moho, <laughs> Mojito. <laughs> well, I mean, I, a lot of people, I did not know this before uh-huh. reading the book. And tell me the difference between these two very simple but staple things in Cuban food. Okay. Well, mojito, which is the, the drink with the rum and, and, the, and the lime juice, um, they, there's the story that that comes from the African word for like a little spell. Like, um, you know, mojo is like you're casting a spell. Um, so there's that. And then mojo, the way it's used in, in, in food preparation, it's either a, it's a prepared sauce or a cooked sauce. Um, it's, it's really just like a, a marinade. So it's, it's always the, the sour oranges and the garlic and the oregano is always the base. And then you can maybe add cumin or you can add different things to it. But we use it. It's, it's also it's not just you. It's used interchangeably. And there, there, it's just, it's, it, it can be confusing for, yeah. for everyone. I just want to make sure I know what I'm getting if I ever go to Cuba and I ask for one or the other or both at the same time. If you ask for a mojito, you're fine. Yeah. It's, o- it's always the diminutive. So if you ask for a mojito, they know you're talking about the drink. If you ask for a mojo, it's sometimes it's the they, they, they well, for instance, for when you make the, the, the roasted pork, you take that lard and then you add lime juice to it, and it just it all bubbles up, and then that's what you dress the, the pork with. You also marinate it in a different. It's 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 all the same. It's just either cooked or fresh, and and it's 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 all citrus based marinade. Let's say. Well, but now I worry if I go to Cuba and ask for ropa vieja, I'm mm-hmm. actually going to get old clothes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not impossible. Yeah. <laughs> If you ask for it in a restaurant, I think you're pretty certain to get yeah. Yeah. the real deal. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the styling of the book because, you know, there, there are so many vivid colors and textures in Cuba and you incorporated them in such a seamless way um, because it was kind of shot in scene. You know, the majority of things were shot in Cuba. Was there anything that you came and parsed out to studio once you were back in New York? One thing that I did, Michael, is I took some of the... I intentionally shot backgrounds and floors that were of interest to me while in Cuba. And once back, um, I had those printed onto canvas so that I could use them throughout the book um, just to give a little bit of veracity. And then Anna and I met with the prop stylist and she looked at you know most of the photographs that I had shot there, and we talked about what we wanted the book to look like, and came out came up with a palette and an idea so that it did feel seamless. It just wasn't possible to take everybody to Cuba with us, even mm-hmm. though both our amazing food stylist Rebecca Jerkovic and Lucy Atwater, who did the prop styling, would have loved to have joined us, but it was not possible. So we had to translate as much as possible once we were back in the studio. Well, I mean, it, it's amazing because it does seem like the majority of imagery is shot in somebody's home in Cuba. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you, you accomplish that leaps and bounds. The, the, the thing that, you know, confounds me about this book is that you traveled, what, 2,600 miles east to west around Cuba. And there is this continuity, but there are these little changes of, 
like we said before, of how food changes, but also how kind of the color and tone of the nation changes as well. Can you kind of take us on that trip a little bit? Well, we we started in Havana. We spent a couple of days, um, and we went to people's homes. We, um, I think, our first day we we visited with two elderly women uh, that are friends of Anna's family, and we spent just an amazing afternoon with them. And they prepared food for us and sort sort of warmed us up to taking pictures and eating and getting in the mood. And uh, we went to a couple of markets in Havana. Um, and I think, and then we, the day or two later after that, we went on our way out to an area called Pinar. Pinar del Rio. T- Pinar del Rio, <laughs> thank you. And Vinales, which is this lush, magnificent countryside, tobacco growing area. And the minute you get into that area, the, the whole landscape changes. And, you know, it's some rolling hills and it's a lot greener. I mean, you're not in a city anymore. And I think then as we traveled, you know, to the west, again, you've got all of this open countryside and then you get up into a mountainous area. So we covered all and we didn't we did go to the beach a little bit up to the coast. Um, but you just you know, get a, a sense of the change of the terrain. And also it got much hotter as we were going away from Havana and people are moving a little bit slower and there's more time. And um, I don't know, Anna, I'm sure you can add some. Uh, no, to me it was, it was you know, my family is from Havana and I've, I've, I love that city. It was, it was almost a sense of relief, though, because of I was looking for food and <laughs> looking for recipes to step outside of the city because I felt like, once people people who can who can grow and raise what they're cooking they they have they have much more access food distribution is very is a, is a is a major problem so being able to to be people who are very connected to what they were serving that was there was just a wealth of information there so really the story i felt like opened up there once we once i stepped outside of havana and then it was to me it was just incredible because just like driving through i would just um, i would we would spend you know like we were saying like 8 hours in the car and I was just constantly fighting sleep because I just I didn't want to close my eyes for a moment because it's even just seeing like the signs, you know, when we did find like we're going into a different city. It was a city that I'd only heard about. So to me, it was just like walking into all these childhood stories, um, seeing things that I'd only seen reference in books or reference in songs. So just like I didn't want to miss a single moment of it. I would just tape. Sometimes we would stop at, you know, a cane field and I would just record the sound for a little bit because I thought, oh, I can finally know what I can finally hear the wind through a cane field or I can see they would talk about the red earth and Ciego de Avila. And my my friend's mother described this when she was giving me her recipe for the calabaza fritters when we were in Miami. And I felt like I found the red earth that she missed. And I was so like I couldn't wait to go back and tell her that I had seen it and that it was true, because I think they always your parents talk to you so much about Cuba and your grandparents and your family that there's almost always a sense that like you're not believing them or they're just they're always making their case <laughs> so I felt like I was just I was just storing it up so I can be like I saw this and you told me about that and I remembered and I can you know I, I took a picture so I just you I wanted to just kind of bring this back to them because I know I know how much how much they missed it so yeah. I felt like I did I just wanted to appreciate every second that I could be physically in this place that they'd that I'd imagined for so long well I mean from reading the recipes too it seems like it's so diverse and so beautiful just simply with potatoes, you know, mm-hmm. little tropical sh- uh, shakes, you know, the, the kind of fruits that go in there. But also the array of dishes 
that have platanos, going to see where those grow and seeing what kind of recipe comes out of that must kind of be amazing as well. It was incredible to see it growing. Like I remember we grow, <laughs> we went up to the this like tiny tiny farm in Baraco, and I was like, oh, I've, I was like, I've, I've never seen a pineapple grow. And he's like, you've never seen a pineapple grow. And he like brought me to like where the pineapples and they were red and. And it just like, you know, I said, like, how do you make coconut oil? And he's like, you don't know how to make coconut oil. Like, he just couldn't believe that I wasn't like, you know, I didn't have a coconut tree outside of my house. So there, it, was, it was great to see all of these things just really just happening in front of you as opposed to seeing it in a box in a store or just having, you know, yeah. no connection to what, to where it, came, where it comes from. That was, that was amazing. It, also, this farm that Anna's talking about, it was just an incredible sense of generosity. We arrived there. We actually spent the night with them, and they took a chicken, and they killed the chicken, and they plucked it, and they put it in the pot and made this you know, delicious stew. With, and we had rice and beans, and the next morning we woke up, and they have a goat, and Alfredo taught Anna and I how to milk the goat, and then we had the goat's milk warm with our breakfast and um when we we went off that day when we came back later that evening they had slaughtered a goat hopefully not the one that we milked we weren't sure (laughs) we didn't ask (laughs) you know we had this amazing goat stew for dinner and alfredo has bees and he collected honey for us and showed us i mean you know came to us with his hands dripping and full of this honeycomb and people that just there is such generosity and openness and and warmth that we that we found so uh, the cubano sandwich Mm -hmm. does that do a disservice to cuban cuisine oh no not at all um it started it started it came from before so it was i think there's always a competing narrative that it started in cuba and then or some people say that it started in tampa it came with cigar workers that were, you know, would they would commute back and forth. I think, it, you know, early 19th century, the mayor of, you know, mayor of Tampa was Cuban. Like, it was a very, very fluid um, immigration um, working in these factories. So they say that they, they had the, the Cubano sandwich was the sandwich mixto from Cuba, and they basically just called it the Cuban sandwich because they were now in the United States. Um, so it was always, it's not a bastardization at all. It's very much ham and ham and pork and cheese and all of that is very much, you know, in our wheelhouse. Like you, you really, I mean, we just, we love our pork. Like it's really goes <laughs> beyond, I think anyone else's, you know, affinity for it. I think those, those flavors are very much, you know, something we, we it's very Cuban. Yeah. I mean, talk to me about another renowned sandwich of Cuba, the Medianoche. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love that you guys have taken that and made it into a croqueta in, in, in the book itself. Um, that was actually Alberto Cabrera. He's this great chef who's working in Miami at Bread and Butter. Um, and he he basically distilled what the Medianoche is, which is it has the pickle and the mustard and the, the ham and cheese and it's just the bechamel. And he made it into this perfect little croqueta. Um, and... Yeah, I thought the medianoche, I think, is wonderful. And I, I, I find that the medianoche is, the bread is such a hard thing to find outside of South Florida. But the medianoche is so close. The bread is, it's a challah loaf. It's a Hawaiian loaf. Like, you can really make a great medianoche outside of, of Miami. I don't know why more restaurants don't carry it. I yeah. think it's, you can make a perfect medianoche. Baking a perfect Cuban sandwich is much harder. So I it, feel like more people should try it. It's funny. I think we live in the same neighborhood because you mentioned in the book that you use lard bread from an Italian baker uh-huh. to, to make some of the Cuban and medianoche sandwiches. Is it Mazzola's? Um, it wasn't Mazzola's. It was um, 
Caputo's. Oh, Caputo's. Yeah. Yeah. And they actually, I actually went down there and the father was there and the son was there and they, we spent a lot of time, they were time yeah. talking me through and they were trying to, they were trying to help me because of course they have those incredible machines in the back and they're like, so it was, it was, they were trying to get me to, how to adapt, show me how to adapt it for a home, for a home kitchen. You know, again, photographing uh, some of the book here, h- how did you adapt certain recipes that you had you know the ingredients that we already talked about you know the visuals but have the right things on set to be able to you know represent cuba in the right way well one thing i remember anna came in one morning with a big box (laughs) and her mom had gotten certain fruits and vegetables for us in miami and fedex them up to us so that we could have exactly what we needed and it was so much appreciated and one other thing i wanted to say about the Cuban sandwiches, we photographed it once, and Anna was like, this just isn't right. The bread's not right. The meat's not cut the right way. So we're like, okay, great. So, you know, come in tomorrow morning, please, with everything exactly how it should be, and we were able to recreate it to, you know, specifically and and as as true as possible. Yeah. Yeah, and it was very, very nice to just want to get it right. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. One of those things, like, you know, you just, you, you can nitpick. But um, we actually went to Union City, and we got the, the the bread there. So that that helped a lot. Having You can find a lot in Union City, but you can find a lot in New York, too, as far as, like, getting those ingredients. Um, here, and Rebecca Jerkovich, who is our, our, food, our food stylist, was also Cuban. So that helped. So it was it was a quick. I didn't have to translate as much. She she knew what I was talking about. Yeah, exactly. yeah I mean, aside from cooking it out of this book, where can you get authentic Cuban, you know, food in New York? You can. I I love Victor's. I th- I feel like they're like the standby, but they're they're really good. Um, they're wonderful, and I think the entire experience when you walk in is very much like what you want a Cuban restaurant to be, as far as like the way that they welcome you and the music playing and, and the feel of it is, is wonderful. Um, Rincón Criollo in Queens is another really great one. Um, I love Pilar. Um, that was where I, you know I think they make a really the best Cuban sandwich in, in Brooklyn. Um, so I feel like there's some places there's fewer. I feel like when I first moved to New York, there was just a ton of Cuban Chinese. Um, and now there's just La Caridad on the Upper West Side, which I love going to because I feel like that's that's like the the one that I remember from when I first that I, I associated with like finding that comfort of of, of finding Cuban food in New York there. But um, there's 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 a few, there's less of everything. I feel like there's 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 not as many Cuban Chinese places. There's not as many. I feel like where there's it's not just Cuban food. I think we're losing a lot of different ethnic ethnic foods in New York right now. I mean. Obviously, nothing's going to um, be better than traveling to Cuba itself and flying into Havana and, you know, seeing that life. Are you, Ellen, attracted to going back and furthering this project, seeing more kitchens, and, and if so, why? I, I would absolutely love to go back um, and continue working on the kitchen project, yes, um, which is, is something that I've thought about and I'm trying to figure out how to do. Um, and I have a couple of other people who are interested in doing projects with me. But in addition to going back to photograph, I have some really dear friends in Cuba now, and I you know, definitely will go back and yes. visit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there I mean, it's the communication's hard. Internet is not easy. Um, you know, so maybe every couple of months or once a month I'll get, you know, an email and try and respond as quickly as possible, hoping that they're still online. And even 
making a phone call can be difficult. Sometimes well, you get through, sometimes you don't. You get cut <laughs> off. It echoes. But yes, I will definitely well, go it, back. It all seemed worth it in the end. I mean, this book is, is stunning, beautiful, and uh, su- such a you know instant relic to what Cuban food cuisine and and the people of that you know island nation mean to the you know greater scope of the world. So. Congratulations on Thank that. You. Thank and you, Michael. Everyone should run out and get the Cuban table now and, you know, travel to Cuba as well. It, it's, it's open. There are ways to get there. Otherwise, these two wouldn't have produced such beautiful work. So thank you again, Anna, Ellen. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.